Hello guys, my name is Alex and this is the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. On the first floor of my apartment building, there's a guy named Patrick who lives alone with his five-year-old son. Just about every night after putting his kid to bed, Patrick takes a black milk crate onto the sidewalk just outside his door and smokes a blunt. We always wave to each other when I get home at around 9 and take my dog for an evening walk. Last night I came home kind of drunk from a friend's house after somebody I'd been seeing for two months took me for what she referred to as a walk and talk, wherein she apologized for having led me on these past couple months and suggested we go our separate ways. And, eager for company, I decided, on this of all nights, to go introduce myself. More on that in a moment. As for the breakup, if you want to call it that, I'd, I'd been expecting it for a few hours. This romantic interest and I had spent the previous night together, and she told me, when the lights were out and we were drinking $11 wine while staring at the river outside her window, that she'd like to hang out again the next day as well. Said she wasn't even sure what she wanted to do, just said that she wanted to get together. So here comes the next day, it's Saturday. I'm at a sports bar with my friend Jesus, we're about to go see Hellboy, and I send a text to this romantic interest person, and I ask her what time she'd like to hang out. She writes back, can we go for a walk and talk at 7.30? So I drive home after the movie, and knowing that this is going to be a breakup, I stop at a bar halfway between our apartments. It's a nice little place called Red Bar. And I get a beer, and I sit in one of the armchairs, and I download Bumble and Hinge and OkCupid, all the dating apps. I set up my profiles over the course of a half hour or so, and then I walk over to her place at the appointed time. She meets me in the breezeway outside her apartment and greets me with a little rigid hug. And we start walking, and she says some stuff about how busy she is with med school and how she feels that she's led me on, that she's sorry to have done so. She says that she doesn't want to lead me on any further into thinking that that a relationship might come of this, tells me that she's just going to get busier and busier as she goes into her third year, etc. The night before, when she asked if I was at all bothered by her extreme busyness with school, I told her that I wasn't bothered so much by her busyness as I was by her remove, these 6- and 13-hour gaps between my text and her response. I mentioned with what I thought was no particular inflection to my voice that in our two months of seeing each other, she hadn't once sent me a text just to say hello or ask how I was doing. She balked at this and, and told me that she had definitely sent me those kinds of texts, and so I said, okay, show me your phone and I'll show you that you haven't, and then she just did this fluttering, dismissive blink and said, okay, maybe it's true. I'm telling myself, and, and now you, that I said this to her with no particular tone or whatever, but looking back, I can see how it might have been something of a red flag to her that I'd even noticed it. I remember once being on a date with someone a few years ago, a lawyer, naturally. When the bill came, she needed to be haggled away from paying it, and like I pointed out that I'd had more to drink than she had, and you know, considerably more, and then, as if I'd said some code word, she like let go of the bill, gave a curt little nod, and she said, with no eye contact, that's true, actually five beers in two hours. Meanwhile, she'd had, you know, two, and I'd noticed that she'd had two, but I remember feeling kind of petrified just to know that she'd been counting them. I figure that it's sometimes the case that a person's even noticing something is a sign that if they're not exactly chafed by it at the moment, they will be somewhere down the line. But so this med student that I've been dating is a cool and articulate person who just could not give comfortable voice to her feelings. It was it was interesting to date somebody whose affection had to be kind of interpreted from their behavior. Interesting, but exhausting. And this person I was dating, who I guess, we, let's call her Katie, um, was naturally very bubbly and brainy and, and tender in touch, if not so much in conversation. And when I started getting restless about these long delays between messages and started you know detailing the whole situation to friends to try to figure out, was is it that she was being cold or am I being desperate? The question that kept coming to mind again and again was whether this is maybe one of the traps of being a writer 
of being chatty and hyperverbal and expecting the same verbosity and candor of everyone around me. Like, it would be cool to say that one of the lessons I'm taking away from this, you know, two-month affair is that I can't date anyone who's tight-lipped about their feelings, and that if, while dating somebody, I start getting a vibe that they aren't rabidly communicative, that I should maybe just, you know, move along and not let myself get invested. I think that would be a nice lesson to walk away with. But really the prevailing lesson of all my relationships is that I do not learn lessons from my relationships. Anyway, so this Katie person dumps me over the course of five or six minutes and I go to a friend's apartment nearby where he tries to console me with a, a packet of Viagra and a slice of DiGiorno separately, not together. While I'm there, I got drunk on these um, three PBRs, and then I walked home, and as I'm going upstairs to my apartment after walking my dog, I see my neighbor downstairs, Patrick, and he's sitting on that milk crate in the parking lot. He's smoking a blunt, and he waves at me, and I wave back, and I say, hey, can I can I join you? And he just shrugs. So I go to my room, and I pour a cup of wine, and I take it downstairs, and I sit with him, and he tells me about his son's recent diagnosis with cerebral palsy, uh, says that the boy's mom lives in Los Angeles and doesn't pay child support. Patrick shows me a photo of her. He's got it right there on command. It's one of the first icons on his home screen, and he looks at it a little longer than I do, and he seems to still have feelings for her. He tells me that he grew up wealthy until he was nine, and his mom went to prison for selling crack. Lots of it, apparently. This was the early 90s. After that, he went to live with his aunt in Opalaka and sold a little weed, but wouldn't go near crack. He tells me that a lot of his friends from back then are dead. A close friend of his had just achieved a new peak of wealth in 1998 and bought himself a three-bedroom house. When a rival drug dealer with whom he'd never so much as traded a cross word showed up at his house one night with a machine gun and killed everybody inside. The killer turned himself in that same night, and the neighborhood was kind of quiet for a few days afterward. I finish my wine, and Patrick and I go on talking for a bit. After a while, his son comes limping out of the bedroom. His left leg bows out sideways at the knee like a wishbone. He's holding a tablet with cartoons playing, and he lumbers over to me, and he grabs my face with one of his tiny hands, and then he just hugs me. I don't really like kids, and I've never been so interested in having any of my own, but something about the wordless, immediate earnestness of that hug from a tiny person made me understand suddenly and with a kind of visceral clarity why some people are so adamant about making them. Everybody in my family over the age of 40 is divorced. Every person I know who's receiving alimony thinks it's too little. Everyone I know who's paying it thinks it's too much. I don't know many married couples who look all that happy together, or who don't say scathing things about one another once you get them alone. I feel lame to say it, but I'm clearly still not 100% over a bad breakup from last year. So this breakup from Saturday, again, if you want to call it that, is hardly moving the dial in terms of woundedness or remorse or anything. But now I'm out here with Patrick, hearing about his situation, I'm thinking about my own situation and about the situations of all my friends and relatives and the misfortunes that they've all accumulated by dating or marrying the wrong person. And it's hard for me to think, in light of all these things, that romantic entanglements can boil down to all that much more than just alimony, child support, sexual frustration, and quarrels, and insecurities, and resentments, and jealousy. It just seems like a bit of a treadmill. But then one night, you're drunk on somebody's front step, and a little kid, the product of a romantic entanglement, comes up and gives you a hug without saying anything. And he sits down beside you with his tablet and asks you to have a look at this German cartoon he's watching, something he stumbled upon by following a chain of recommended videos on that kid-censored version of YouTube. And you ask him what the cartoon's about, and of course he has no idea because it's in fucking German, but he explains it to you anyway. He invents a premise right there on the fly, believes it wholeheartedly, and tells you about it. A gentle little creature with no desire on earth but to learn things and share things and give out hugs to the drunken strangers who need them. And it's easy to figure at, at moments like that, for at least a moment, that there are maybe a couple respects in which the whole romantic entanglement thing, for all of its long-term heartache and frustration and financial destitution, might, in a couple of respects, be worthwhile.
friend Jesus took me to the movies this weekend as an early birthday gift. I turned 28 on Wednesday. First we went to a sports bar and I got drunk and said some embarrassing things about my sex life at a volume that was apparently not what you would call indoorsy. And then we went to see Hellboy, which was reportedly very bad and that was kind of the reason we wanted to see it. And at the bar beforehand we talked about how its 11% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes gave a very different impression from the conversations we'd been reading about on Reddit, where people who had seen the movie were mostly just shrugging and saying it was fine. This is one of the problems with movie review aggregators. You'd get the impression, from a score of 11%, that the movie is a total shit show disaster, when what it really means is that 89% of the critics thought it was just mediocre, and probably unworthy of the dozen or so dollars you've got to pay for the ticket. However nuanced or middle of the road their review might be, it gets categorized as either positive or negative, and that's that. It's, it's kind of misleading. So finally we get up and we go see the movie, and how was it? It's fine. You get glimpses of competency throughout, but mostly it's trying too hard to be a certain kind of nerdy cool, with the heavy metal soundtrack and the profanity and the gore, and then it's somehow also trying to integrate Arthurian legends into the mix. There's a big part of the movie that it seems like a grievously misguided effort to ape the success of Game of Thrones. The final scene is cringingly awful, and on top of being like potently crafted for the sensibility of a 12-year-old, even though it's a hard R rating, Hellboy is also... At, especially at the end, just unduly optimistic about the prospect of a sequel. There's an unfortunate trend in movies now where producers seem to think that audiences won't be satisfied with their two-hour investment unless they're led to think that, like with Marvel, this is a story that will go on forever and, you know, every story has to be massive, a trilogy at the very least. But there are some movies, very much like Hellboy, which would benefit from, I think, being a lot smaller. Okay, Cupid shows that there are two single women in my area who are 27 years old and 6 feet 10 inches tall. The odds of this seem remote. One of them is an avowed chain smoker from Scotland, and the other one mentions half-jokingly that she might be an alcoholic. She's got photos of cocktails the way some people have photos of food. She speaks with pride of her very long legs and, along with the cocktails, has several photos of herself from the waist down. In response to a profile prompt asking her to describe the worst date she ever went on, she writes simply, the dude pulled up in a Mini Cooper. This thing about the tall women in the Mini Cooper seems very Miami, and I think people from here will know what that means. Like obscenity, you just kind of know it when you see it. The qualities of Miami-ness, however, are pretty tough to articulate. Here to give it a shot is my roommate, a 28-year-old Cuban engineer born and raised in Miami. He loves it here. His name is Laz. Hello, Laz. Hello, Alex. Miami, Florida, uh -huh. the entire city, okay. manifests one night in our living room as a human being, a man. Tell me about this man. Do you want me to speak like him? No, or describe him to me. Do you want to describe this man? What are his habits? He's like six foot. He's skinny. He's of Hispanic descent. Uh, but he has a thick accent. He kind of talks like this, you know what I mean? Like... And his Spanish is okay, despite his accent that would make you feel like he's a native speaker of the Spanish language. Early 2000s Honda Civic, you know, Inkaholic, Inkaholic's bumper sticker. He's got, a, he's got something for everything. You know, you got a guy like you, but like, I know a guy that can help you out and get this right for you. You know what I'm saying, bro? Like, uses the N-word profusely, is, <laughs> is not black at all. Uh, <laughs> He's generally a, a pretty nice guy. He does have a temper, though. 
feel like he wears like some sort of flat brim hat, probably like a Dolphins hat, uh, uh, maybe like a, a t-shirt, like a, a Notorious B.I.G. t-shirt, shorts, um, and one slippers with like, <laughs> you know, uh, like I want to say like long socks that go up his uh, ankle. Um, and his name is his name is Carlos. His name is Alex. His name is Nick. And he's got an opinion about his sports teams. He's got an an opinion about girls. He's he's probably pretty pretty misogynistic. But you know he's a poppy. And what's his girlfriend like? His girlfriend he his girlfriend frequents uh, fights with him on Ocean Drive on their. <laughs> Uh, and and like yo, I got like the day off, babe. Let's go to the beach. And like, he, by the time they hit the boardwalk, they're in a full blown argument. She's like, <laughs> and she's like, and she goes, Carlos, with you, I can't. And she leaves. She gets in an Uber. And she leaves. And as she's getting in the Uber, he goes, babe, don't be like that. That that's their dynamic. He doesn't know much about her. <laughs> All right. Thank you for talking with me today. You're welcome. And now we go to the mail. Today's letter comes out of Boston. Dear Thousand Movie Project. Hello, my name is Le Fleur. I am criminal. I steal purse for make living. It is delicious. Last month, my girlfriend say to me that she want not I make the living by steal purse. So I apply for work at church near my home. The church is very tall and wow. I want to be priest. When other priests ask me what my work experience is, I say to them, My name is Lafleur. I am criminal. I have not heard back from them. Please you do me with advices? Please. Kisses from your friend Lafleur. Hello, Lafleur. Thank you for writing in. I appreciate your candor here, and I commend you for your headway with English. You're really getting there. Life, as we know, isn't always a walk in the park or a baguette in the shower, and the burden of making ends meet, especially when a significant other or child is depending on us, can, at times, compel us toward unglamorous or illicit means of remuneration. That your professional history is spangled with achievements that are perhaps at odds with legality is no testament to your spiritual veracity. Indeed, the Catholic Church's finger-wagging at your purse-snatching is kind of ironic, considering where their own hands have been. But that's a topic for another time. Here's a true story. As a student at Florida International University, I decided to try my hand at transferring, during my sophomore year, to one of the more prestigious universities upstate. The particular university I had in mind sported a more colorful academic environment, and their creative writing program was particularly esteemed. I thought that this was the gateway to becoming a successful writer. While filling out the application for transfer, I was asked if I'd ever in my life been arrested, which I haven't. Or, equally important, had I ever received a traffic ticket amounting to a penalty of more than $300? The truth was, I had. Three years prior, at the age of 17, I was pulled over for running a red light in front of the LA Fitness on US 1 and 162nd Street. The ticket was for $350. I checked yes on the application's box, and the application froze, went into total suspension. I was then prompted to write and submit a 500-word essay about what had happened to earn me the citation and what I had learned from the experience. My application would be placed on hold indefinitely until an administrator could read my essay and, presumably, make a judgment about my moral fiber. With everlasting respect for that upstate university as an estimable institution of higher learning, I closed my laptop and sighed and said to myself, well, fuck that, and decided right there to spend the next two years at FIU where, with a newfound resolve to make the best of a second-tier choice, I made terrific friends, learned a great deal, and got every bit of the education a fellow could hope for. My point is this. 
The public renown of a certain institution is no testament to its worthiness of your employ. Misery often presents itself in all sorts of finery. Never lose sight of the fact that the thing a person or institution demands of you as signs of worthiness are a window into the values of that person or institution. If a group of people won't have you because you've snatched a purse, or, in my case, because you got a traffic ticket three years ago, they're probably not the kinds of people you want to spend that much time with anyhow. They're certainly not the kinds of people you want to be answering to for a paycheck. If the church of your choosing will not have you because it's made a judgment about your character without having first made any effort to get to know you personally, get to know the le fleur within, I implore you to find another one, a smaller one. You seem like a charismatic, loyal, life-loving dude, and I suspect it's only a matter of time before you find the crowd that'll embrace you. Until then, however, I'm compelled to suggest, albeit delicately and with all due respect, that at least while you're still looking for a job, it might behoove you to quit stealing shit. Sincerely, Alexander Sarando and the Thousand Movie Project. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and to read our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.